You're a good, good father. That's who you are. And we're loved by you. And that's who we are. And so in these next few minutes, we come to the water. We come to the word. We come to be fed. Because we are your children. We want to be led by you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, um, on this journey that we've been walking together on as a church, this Lenten journey that's going to take us to Easter, we've been wrestling with this Lenten question that we introduced at our Ash Wednesday service and keep repeating every time we're together on Sunday mornings, and it's, how do I turn my heart, how do I turn toward God with all of my heart? How do I turn toward God with with all of my heart, which has a presumption in the question. The presumption is that even though we may have been Christians our entire lives, whatever age we are, and even though we've been exposed to lots of theology and lots of scripture and lots of worship and lots of things, there are parts of our heart where we don't let the Holy Spirit penetrate. And for the most part, that isn't always a conscious decision. It's something that just happens. And so during the season of Lent, um, we, let, we let God kind of take his spade into the garden of our hearts and our minds and dig around and expose things that we haven't seen or thought about before. And we've been taking big chunks of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament lessons, along with passages of the Psalms, and we've been looking at them. And, and even though they're big chunks of Scripture, we've boiled down each week to one word. We've looked together at this issue of trust. God is to be trusted because God is faithful. And we have to wrestle with that issue of trust in our lives. How can I I turn toward God and trust him more with all my heart? And then this issue of hope. How can I turn toward God and and trust and and hope in him with all of my heart? And today we're going to look at one other word. And that word is mercy. And it seems like today we turn the corner a little bit because with trust and hope, the the onus is kind of on us to respond to God in a certain way. But with mercy, it's more, how do I open my heart and my soul and my mind to God in a more profound way so that his mercy can wash over every inch and sphere of my life? Now, now the Bible... um, hangs two things in paradox, in tension with one another. There is this issue of justice on the one hand, which the Bible is very strong about. God wants justice. And at the same time, there is this concept of of mercy. And we like justice and we like mercy as well. For instance, um, this past week, uh, there was an article in the Chicago Tribune about a Greek Orthodox priest who had... um, who had stolen $100,000 from a trust fund in his previous church in Wisconsin. And he had been found guilty of stealing $100,000, and his punishment uh, was parole. He was going to be prayed to see his parole officer. And the next day in the Chicago Tribune, John Koss, who writes about a lot of things, was outraged at the injustice of this Greek Orthodox priest. I mean, if you and I went out to the parking lot right now and stole a $10,000 car... 
are upgraded to a $20,000 or $30,000 or $50,000 car, which is half the amount of money that this guy, we would serve some kind of jail time. We'd be held accountable at another level. And he went on to point out that in certain neighborhoods in the city of Chicago, if certain people from certain ethnic groups committed that crime, they would certainly do prison time in some way, shape, or form. But this priest stole $100,000 and got probation. So my conclusion was, I'm going to Wisconsin to commit my crimes, because apparently <laughs> there was an outcry for justice. It just seemed like it was unjust. We like it when there's justice, right? Shouldn't people get what they deserve? Shouldn't there be some kind of consequence for everything that we do and we hold people accountable? We love this concept of justice, and, and God loves justice as well. <laughs> On the other hand, there is this issue of mercy, which is the antithesis of justice. Mercy is when we get less than what we deserve. We get better than what we deserve. It's when someone is gracious or kind or has pity on us or cuts us some slack. I mean, mercy is when we're grounded by our parents for two weeks and we still get to go out on Friday night. That's mercy. That's what it looks like. And mercy looks a little bit different in the Old Testament than it looks in the New Testament. The Old Testament word that is most often translated as mercy is the word kesed, which is one of these great, rich Hebrew words, kesed. It's often translated, as well as mercy, as steadfast love and loving kindness and compassion. It describes God. It's a God who forbears with us, who hangs in there no matter what, who never deserts us, who always cuts us some slack. It's kesed. It's God's loving kindness. The Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, is slow to anger. He's very patient with us, and he's abounding in chesed, love and faithfulness. I mean, in Psalm 136, there are qualities of God that are described, and every time a quality of God is described, the congregation responds with this phrase, the love, his love endures forever. And so let me just read, let's just read together these three verses. Please read out loud the, the yellow part. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. And if you want to, you can go and read that this afternoon, and there's 24 verses of these comments about who God is and what God does, and they're all demonstrations of chesed, of chesed. His love endures forever. Forever is a long time. He never gives up on us. And so he hangs these two things in tension. There is justice on the one hand. On the other hand, there is mercy. Now in the New Testament, mercy is obviously most profoundly demonstrated in the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has mercy and demonstrates mercy all the time. We're told that he had chesed on people, that he had compassion on the people because they were like sheep without a shepherd, right? They were lost. They didn't know where they were going. Jesus had compassion and loving kindness toward people who were blind and so he healed them, who were lame and so he healed them. He demonstrated God's loving kindness to a woman who was about to be stoned because she had been caught in the act of adultery. It was his mercy. They were about to exact justice. She was going to get the consequences that she knew about. If you committed adultery in Jesus' day, Roman and Jewish law both called for you to be stoned to death in the public square. That would be justice. She'd get what she deserved. No one would complain. John Koss wouldn't write about it. But Jesus demonstrated mercy, the mercy of the Lord. 
the lectionary text for today illustrate God's mercy. We've kind of alluded to and talked about this whole Isaiah 55 passage. Let's just look at the first three verses. Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen. Listen to me and eat what is good and you'll delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful chesed promised by God. And so here... Isaiah paints a picture in poetry of an invitation that is being extended for people to come to a banquet. It's a symbolic banquet. And when I demonstrated this banquet, I purposely chose this picture. There's lots of food, right? And I thought that right before you were getting hungry for brunch, you'd like to see that. Actually, I chose it because if you take real close note, there's chairs that are set. It's not just a buffet table where a whole crowd can walk up. There are chairs set. And when God invites us to a banquet, he invites each of us individually to sit in a chair. He doesn't say, hey, have a crowd of people show up and just kind of belly up to the buffet table. There's a chair set. There's probably a name tag there at this banquet for you individually. Come. Buy and eat. Sit down. Come to the banquet. It's a glorious feast. It's prepared just for you. And in the midst of all of that, the prophet asks a very profound question. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? I mean, why would we choose to eat junk food if we could go to the banquet? And it's a good question, right? We're not always sure why we go to the junk food counter as opposed to the banquet, but we do it all the time. We don't always do it consciously. It's something that we're always led to. We chase after things that are eventually going to lead us empty, that aren't going to really satisfy us. But in a moment's time, we kind of think they will. And in fact, the culture in which we live tells us that's where you really find satisfaction. That's going to bring it to you. And then you go there and you eat. And it's only a matter of time, and you're going to be hungry again. You're going to be empty. How many times haven't we thought, if I only had this, then I would be satisfied? If I could only do that, then I would be satisfied. If I could only go there, then I would be satisfied. If I could only live in that place as opposed to here, then I would be satisfied. I mean, if I had a better spouse, my life would be easier. If I had a new job, if I had a different degree, if I went to a better or a bigger school, if I had a better salary, if I had nicer clothes, if I had more power or more prestige, a better resume. We chase after all these things that we are told or believe are going to satisfy us, and sometimes we actually get them. We get that better job. We get more power. We get more prestige. I buy new clothes, and I don't look any better. They don't really satisfy. They just leave us empty. I mean, why why do we do that? Why do we do that? Timothy Keller calls all of that chasing after counterfeit gods. Anything that we put first in our life 
other than God is counterfeit. In other words, anytime we believe that something else is going to bring us satisfaction, we're chasing after an idol. And I don't think we always think of that. We think of idols as, you know, wooden or rocks or nature or sun or moon or stars or something else. And something else is an idol. But it's anytime we put something else in, in place of God first, where we think we're going to get satisfaction. An idol is something that, that we look to, for to, to provide things that only God can give us. Which brings us to the season of Lent. A time for introspection. A time for God to shine his light around in the dark places of our lives and our souls. To reveal the counterfeit gods that we aren't even aware are there for us as life. Or we might know we're there, they're there and we kind of ignore them because we really want to deal with that messy dark part of life. And sometimes our idols are work. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands of the workaholics in the room. Nor am I going to ask your spouses to point to the workaholics in the room. Because I don't want to expose myself. And sometimes our idols are recreation. Sometimes our, idol are, our idols are family. Sometimes our idols are even found in the life of the church. Anytime we think that something else is going to give us more satisfaction than God, we have an idol. And we all have them, right? We all have them. Sometimes we find them in our theology and in our doctrine. Keller shines a little bit of light in that darkness when he says that idolatry functions widely inside religious communities where doctrinal truth is elevated to the position of a false god. This occurs, he says, when people rely on the rightness of their doctrine for their standing with God rather than on God himself and his grace. Our view of scripture is the best. Our practice of baptism of infants is what makes sense. Our doctrine of predestination is better than anybody else's doctrine. And we get kind of self-righteous about what we... You know, we in the Reformed community, we, get, you know, we kind of think we have it right, right? I mean, it's too bad for those you know, Baptists around the corner or the Lutherans or the Episcopalians or the, the Romans. They don't have it. It's a good thing we have it right. If they just show up here, they'd have it right. Because we have it right. Until you try to get in a discussion of why you baptize infants and you can't really figure out what to say. Or if you could send me an, an explanation of the common understanding of predestination, I would really like that. Keller says that the sign that we've slipped into this form of self-justification is that we become what the book of Proverbs calls a scoffer. You know, you, you remember sitting in the seat of scoffers, this idea, sitting in the seat of scoffers. What's a scoffer? I mean, what, what is a scoffer? A scoffer is, is defined in the Bible as someone who shows contempt and disdain for opponents rather than graciousness. And when I read that definition this week and was reminded what a scoffer really was, I, I was convicted by the Holy Spirit to, to say guilty as charged. I, I can be a scoffer. I can sometimes think that we've got the right way, we've got the best way, and it's too bad those other people and those other denominations don't know the way. But anytime you, you speak of someone else with disdain and not graciousness, you're a scoffer. And we've fallen into this practice of self-justification, the idol of an 
our ideas are the best and exclusive. And then there is this lectionary passage from Luke that speaks of God's mercy in a rather odd way. And this Lucan passage from chapter 13 also introduces us to a Jesus that we don't meet very often, a Jesus who is demanding rather than affirming, a Jesus who points out our flaws rather than overlooks them, a Jesus who doesn't put his arm around us but puts his finger in our chest. Luke chapter 13, verse 1, begins this way. There it is. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices, and Jesus answered... Do you think that those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they they suffered this way? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Are those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you you think that they were more guilty than, than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. And then he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree that was growing in his vineyard and he went to look for fruit on it, but he didn't find any. And so he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming back to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it be using up the soil? Sir, the man replied, Leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then we'll cut it down. So there is this question about cause and effect. That's how this parable begins, right? It preceded by this idea of cause and effect. There were Galileans who died at a worship service who were slaughtered and killed in the middle of it. And there was the automatic assumption in the first century, well, because of sins that they had committed, this was what the consequence was. It's cause and effect. They died because they were greater sinners than we were. We're spared. God spared us because we're righteous people. And Jesus said, ah, that's not exactly the way it works. Well, what about those who died in that tragic accident? You know, where where that tower fell on all those people. It was was an accident, but but certainly they were being punished because they lived a sinful life, and and we didn't, so that's the way it works. There's cause and effect. And we love to kind of find cause and effect and cause and effect. And Jesus bluntly says, no, that's not it. There is no cause and effect. This is kind of the way it works in life. Things happen. They were there worshiping at the wrong time. So don't sit around and philosophize about who was more sinful, you or them, or whatever the case may be. But let me just tell you this. You need to repent. I mean, we like to deflect with philosophical conversations and talk about other situations, right? I mean, why is there so much suffering in the world? How can a God who loves allow so much suffering? Well, that's a great question. We can wrestle with that sometime. But what about your faithfulness? What about your walk with Jesus? What are you doing? You need to repent. You need to change. You need to go about life differently. Unless you repent, you too will all perish. So you can talk about the Galileans and you can talk about the people who died in this tragic accident. But the sense of the matter is we're all going to die. We're all going to perish. And you've got to make a choice. Because God is just. 
and you need to change, and you need to walk away from what you're doing. You need to go in a whole different direction. Why does he say that? Well, the Apostle Paul knew why. He wrote about it in the book of Romans. He said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we're all guilty. And the wages of sin, the cost, the price, the consequences of all being guilty is death. We all have counterfeit gods. We all spend money on what is not bread and our labor on what doesn't satisfy. And God is just. I mean, let's be clear about that. The uncomfortable part about this whole story is that God is just. He doesn't overlook everything. He holds people accountable. There's going to be a final judgment, we're told in Scripture. I mean, somebody has to keep score of the world in which we live. Somebody's got to hold people accountable for the Holocaust or for Tiananmen Square, or for the Bosnias, or for drive-by shootings of innocent people, or for those who engage in stealing children for sex trades, or those who abuse little kids, those who oppress the poor. One day there has to be justice in the world for this world to make any sense whatsoever. And the Bible says that justice will roll down like a river. There's going to be justice meted out. And that we're all going to have to give an account someday. We're all going to have to sit before God in the judgment seat. And I'm not really excited about having God play that videotape of my life, of all that messy stuff I've done. That's justice. There's going to be justice. He's a God of justice. But there's also mercy. Come all who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Who gets to come? Everybody. Everybody who's thirsty, everybody who's empty. I mean, I'm not sure we realize how revolutionary of an idea this was for Isaiah to write to the people of Israel who thought they had exclusive claim on God's love and everybody else was on the outside. When Isaiah wrote to the Israelites and said, come all who are thirsty, come all, it was all inclusive, everybody from every nation, no matter what your ethnic group was, no matter what your religious background, no matter what you've done in the past, no matter how sinful of life you've lived, come! Everybody come to the banquet. It's open to everybody. It's not exclusive. Everybody can show up. Everybody gets to come. You see, that's mercy as opposed to justice. And Jesus reminds us that we all need to repent. I mean, we all have to not just be sorry for what we did or feel badly about what we do. But, but we need to realize where our sinful things are and we need to actually, repent means to turn and walk in the other direction, to turn away and go to a different In other words, we're going in our own direction and we need to move toward God. It requires a change of behavior or thought patterns or whatever the case might be. We have to literally walk away and go in a different direction. Jesus said a man owned a plot of land and he had an unproductive, unproductive tree he called it, told the caretaker that this tree had produced no fruit. I mean, he's been there three years and the same you know, dead, bad tree is there. I mean, why don't we just get rid of it? It's not doing anything. We're wasting time and energy and money on this dead tree. Jesus is laying out expectations for the church. Followers of Jesus Christ are not just supposed to be existing in the world. 
Being a faithful follower of Jesus is not a spectator sport. The question Jesus will ask is, are you producing fruit? What kind of fruit are you producing? And where are you producing that kind of fruit? He expects us to be productive. He's willing to put in the work. He's willing to till the soil, fertilize, give us everything we need and all the resources. But he expects us to be productive. And so he'll ask us about our productivity sometimes. But the caretaker said, well, you know, let's, let's not take the tree out this year. You know, give me one more chance to fertilize and water and care for it the way it needs to be cared for. Give me, give me one more chance. Give me some, give me some chesed. Let me give it some mercy. And so the caretaker says, okay. Chesed it is. Mercy it gets. You know, what does mercy look like? Mercy looks like shouting from the top of the tallest building in Jerusalem, come all who are thirsty. No matter what you've done in your past, no matter how you've lived, no matter what you're thinking about, no matter what you're doing now, everybody gets to come. Come, the, open, the invitation is open to everybody. What does mercy look like? The place where God's unswerving commitment to justice and God's undying longing to have mercy on his people where they meet together is on the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross is the declaration of God's hatred of sin and all the damage that it does. And the cross is the declaration of God's love for sinners and his insatiable appetite to redeem them. As a father has compassion, has chesed on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And so Lent calls us to live in the tension of justice and mercy, to do some digging around in our life and to kind of figure out where those dark places might be. And then then give them the Lord and allow him to bless them with his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness. He's a good, good father. It's who he is. And we're loved by him. He gives us his chesed. That's who we are. Will you pray with me, please? Confession is good for the soul. And so we confess, Lord, that sometimes when we read your word, the Holy Spirit convicts us with our shortcomings. We love to demand justice in the world until we look in the mirror and then we want to demand mercy. And so help us, O Lord, to be not only recipients of mercy but the purveyors of mercy to other men and women. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are recipients of the mercy of the Lord, his graciousness and his love. And uh, when we give of our tithes and offerings, we're saying, Lord, thank you. Here's my symbol of gratitude. Here's my symbol of thanks. I'm so appreciative for what you've done. And so we continue to worship with our tithes and our offerings.